What we're going to do this morning is we've been going through the book of Acts, um, just looking at it, the entire story, the entire narrative. It's this great story about the early church, and it's really sort of, you want to think of it this way, the biography of how this uh, early community of followers of Jesus, um, throughout the the book of Acts, they're referred to as the way, the followers of Jesus, the disciples. Um, In a few weeks, we're going to see the very first time that they're identified as Christian. Um, That that was a, a term or a name that was really not... Uh, indicative of them. They didn't necessarily own that as themselves. It was kind of a derogatory term that was uh, labeled upon them, like Christ-like people. You guys are all like Jesus. Like, um, what an accusation that is, huh? Like, if someone came up to you, you're like, you're like Jesus. Like, you're like, thank you. That's, that's awesome. I want that. I own that. I wear that proudly. That's who I want to be. So, so this is the story of the early followers of Jesus and how they became this, this movement that was really unstoppable and what uh, what their lives were like and how various characters, people within the story of the early church, how they came to interaction with Jesus. And today we're actually going to be reading the story of probably one of the most profoundly impacting people within the entire church. I mean, even to this day, and it's really the story of his, his conversion, or what I'll describe it as his encounter with God. And uh, many of your Bibles might actually describe this as the conversion of Saul of Tarsus or the conversion of Paul the Apostle, whatever, um, whatever title that your Bible describes it. I like to think of it as this encounter with God because it, it is a conversion. Something happens in this guy Paul. He does change. He is transformed. But what really is going on here is he encounters God in a way like he's never, ever encountered God prior to this event. Um, and for some of the obvious reasons we'll take a look at, I mean, Paul is this religious leader. He's not some sort of drug addict. He's not a pimp. He's not somebody that's living this heretical, evil, debased type of a lifestyle. Paul is, is, is uber-religious, uber-righteous. Um, in fact, if you were to sit down and hang out with Paul, you'd probably be really hard-pressed to find Paul doing anything wrong. I mean, we're talking his morality was absolutely impeccable. You could not, it was bulletproof. You could not find blame against this this guy. And yet, uh, he completely missed God. But in this story that we're going to read, he he finds God, or actually rather God finds him. Something radically transforms or changes within his entire paradigm, his entire life, and stage of his life is completely reset. And this is, this is really the story. This is such an important story throughout the, the narrative of the broader book of Acts um, that Luke, who's the narrator, he's actually a guy writing this book, he records Paul's account, this conversion, this encounter with God, uh, three times. Actually, three occasions he, account, he records this story. So this is a really uh, integral story to the larger narrative uh, at, at large. Um, one other final thing that we know from this guy, Saul. So I'll, I will probably go back and forth, refer to him as Saul. Sometimes I'll slip and call him Paul the Apostle. It's one and the same guy. Like his name originally was Saul of Tarsus, which just means Saul of, of where he's originally from. That's a city. Tar- Tarsus which is where he's from. Tarsus was actually located um, in modern-day Hungary, not too far, um, you know, it was, it was inland a little bit, but um, that's where uh, Saul was originally from. He ends up, at some point later on throughout the book of Acts, having his name changed. His name ends up becoming Paul. Um, so I'll go back and forth probably just because I kind of get it confused once in a while. So if, I, if you hear me talk about Saul and hear me talk about Paul, I'm talking about the exact same person. 
person, so there, I said it. So the point that I would make is that this is really such an important story because what we learn about later on, this guy Paul, in fact, if you um, look at your New Testament, the, the Bible is actually uh, a library of 66 books. Um, the New Testament, what we would call uh, or describe it as, the majority of that is actually written by this guy. So this guy is so important that, that Luke, for whatever reason, records on three different occasions, um, the story of his encounter with God. So I want to read that story, um, really from verse 1 to 9, and uh, next week we'll kind of get more into a little bit about how he becomes integrated into the actual church at large, but this is really the story of his conversion or encounter with God. So I'm going to read it, Um, I'm going to pray first, we'll read it, and then uh, I'll make some comments along the way, and I'll really just kind of close with some summary thoughts, and really what I want to emphasize is this notion of this encounter with God. In fact, what I want to actually do this morning is not just simply read the story, because it's always important for us, whenever we read the Bible, uh, to also really ask God, God, so now what? Now what? Now what do you want to do with this information? So oftentimes, I think we want to just simply gather intellectual information about scriptures or about the Bible and in a lot of ways, part of the, partly because that's the safest way to approach God. Here's what I mean by that. We can listen to passages and read scriptures and gather information and listen to podcasts and listen to sermons and, and, and walk away from that experience completely untouched by, by God. Our, our minds might be you know, moved a little bit, but our hearts oftentimes remain at this distance between us and God. So in other words, what happens is we may have gathered a little bit more Bible knowledge, but really our hearts are still the same hardened, jaded, cynical, broken, messed up, damaged, dirty uh, human beings that we've always been. And you know what God's really truly interested in is, is our radical transformation. Not just giving us a little bit of information, not just giving us some advice, not just giving us some theological concepts and constructs whereby which we can then from that point forward pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but so that in this encounter with God, God changes us. And and what I want to do is, is set the stage right now is as we finish, as I finish up my message this morning, we're going to give space to God. And, and what I want to do is I want you to begin to think about this because for some of you, you need to do business with God. Your life has not been right. It's not been straight. You've been duplicitous. You've been one thing on the one hand and one thing on the next. And in reality, you think as if somehow by the projection of your own identity on all forms of social media, you, you've fooled everybody. But in reality, you haven't fooled God. God knows exactly who you are. God knows exactly the wrestlings, the issues, the things, the questions, the disbelief, all that. He knows all of that that's going on within your heart. And, and yet he's still, just like with, with Saul of Tarsus, he will pursue you, not to crush you, to destroy you as an ultimate end, but to transform you. And we're going to give space. Um, and what we're going to do, and I'll just, I'll just say this up front, is we're going to give space at the end to have you come on forth to the front to just be prayed for. It's really what we want to do. Is just have others within our church. If you're a leader here, be ready because I'm going to invite you guys to come on up to be available to pray for people. So if you lead small groups, if you're part of our elder team, if you are involved in any form of uh, ministry within a church, I'm going to invite you to come on forward to as you as you see people needing pray, uh, prayer to pray for them, to lay hands on them and pray for them. Because at the end of the day, we don't ever want to be a church that just simply gathers information and walks out unchanged. 
We really truly believe that the power of God wants to transform and change us, remake us, renew us, reorient us, so that we are different people. We are changed people in the likeness of, of God. And so we're going to give you guys opportunity to so be thinking about that, be praying about that. Is that me? Um, be asking that question, what is God wanting me to do in response to this? So for some of you, uh, you had really no intention. You thought maybe you're just going to go to church, hear a good message, and leave, and completely stay at that nice, marginalized, safe distance between you and God. And God wants to radically wreck that idea <laughs> and, and rebuild something in its place. God wants to destroy those little walls that we erect for ourselves, that we try to keep ourselves protected and isolated really from God and, and, and bring about transparency so that our lives are, are changed. So that being said, I want to jump in. I'll read the story. I'll pray first, and then uh, I'll make some comments at the end, and then we will allow for space for people to be prayed for. So let me pray. We'll jump in. God, we thank you that you're here. We thank you that your presence is here. You're, you're in the midst of your people. So God, right now, we just want to say um, we're glad to be here. God, we're, we're, we're humbled. We're excited. We're thrilled. We're maybe in some cases even afraid of being in your presence. For some of us, God, it's, just, it's terrifying right now. Um, and yet, God, you, you reveal yourself to us not as an angry landlord who's out to evict us, but you are a loving, generous, compassionate father that is quick to embrace us. Um, so, Lord, we, we thank you for your presence here. Holy Spirit, we, we invite you to begin to peel back layers, to begin to erode walls that we've erected, begin to reorient, God, our lives, our hearts, our minds to allow you the space to do what you desire to do, which is to bring life. So the, the very things that we oftentimes so much fear and dread about you, God, uh, we, we pray that those things would fall by the wayside and we would find ourselves completely transparent before you and allowing you to do whatever it is that you choose to do in our hearts and our lives. So we, we give you space, Father, to do as you wish here in this place. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Well said. Amen. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 9. You guys ready? You guys good? All right, let's jump in. I'm going to just read Acts chapter 9. I'll make some comments as we go through, and uh, for the most part, we'll just kind of read the narrative. It says this. Whoops, I'm in the wrong book. My, my mechanical pencil deceived me. Is it Acts? Okay. Thank you, thank you. Here we go. All right. You guys like mechanical pencils? Who's a mechanical pencil freak? Yes. Yes. This is a really good one. It's blue. It's like really thick lead. Mm, love it. Anyways, <laughs> verse 1 says this, but Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples, these were the followers of Jesus, Paul, this guy Saul, uh, he was part of this uh, kind of posse uh, group, community, uh, brotherhood that was actually out to destroy and undermine um, this early movement called Christianity, uh, the way, however you want to describe it. Um, Saul saw himself as sort of a defender of Judaism, and he saw this early movement of Jesus' people as basically being threats to undermine 
uh, this Judaism that he had inherited from um, this long lineage of, of his fathers, and uh, ultimately going back to, to Moses. And it says that he was out to go destroy, and not just simply undermine or to undo, but actually arrest, throw in prison. Um, now, if you remember, the first time that we were actually introduced to this guy, Saul, was uh, earlier at the martyrdom of this guy by the name of Stephen. Um, so Stephen literally is, is brutally stoned to death. Um, um, if, if, you've, if you're not familiar with that, um, there, there are YouTube videos, shockingly, and oftentimes they take place in Muslim countries where someone is taken out, whether they be accused of homosexuality or adultery or some other type of sin, and they're brought into the center of, of the town. And, and literally, this mob mentality uh, of blood-lusting people grab stones and just begin to hurl them at people and to the point they are no longer able to defend off or they get a blow to the head and their hands fall down. And then they begin to take blow upon blow until they actually die. This is exactly what happened to this guy by the name of Stephen. He's one of the early church followers uh, or followers of Jesus in the early church. Um, Saul, we're told, that was actually standing right there. Um, we're told that his posture was one that he was consenting under the death of, of, of Stephen. So in other words, Saul is looking at this, watching this, and he's not simply looking at this and saying, this is unjust. An innocent man is being killed. Saul's looking at this and saying, this is awesome. More blood. We need more of this happening because this guy, Stephen, is getting his just reward. He has turned against Moses, turned against the temple, turned against Jehovah. He deserves to die. And this is the posture that Saul, the apostle, or Saul of Tarsus has. Is he's, one, he's consenting over the death of Stephen. Now, Saul's continuing sort of this rampage as he uh, gathers these letters. We don't know exactly what these letters are. Probably some sort of uh, letters from the high priest, which he describes later, uh, to go out and to arrest people. And, and we're told that he's on his way up to this area of Damascus. Um, obviously, there was a large pocket of Christians or followers of Jesus that had basically been brought into that region, um, no doubt because of a previous um, um, the persecution that was going on there in the early church. And there were these little pockets, these little communities of, of Jesus' people that were forming all around those regions. And one happened, no doubt, to be formed in Damascus. So it says that he went out uh, to the high priests and he asked them for letters uh, to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, uh, who are you, Lord? And then he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him to the hand, by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And this is the story of, of Saul. I mean, there's other details that are basically elaborated upon in the other two locations where uh, Saul describes this. Um, but, but let's jump in a little bit and try to understand a little bit about who this guy is. So just kind of some bullet points. Next slide. Uh, who is Saul? Saul of Tarsus, otherwise known as Paul. Um, this is one of my favorite paintings it's a Caravaggio, or done by Caravaggio. He, was, uh, this, he actually had done two paintings about the conversion of St. Paul. This is, uh, I believe, the very first one. The second one came out a little bit later. I believe I could be wrong on that. But um, uh, uh, this is the story about Saul, his conversion, his transformation. Um, here's a few bullet items about 
Paul that he later would refer to talk about himself. One, we're told that he's a Jew. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, most of these items um, would be basically moments of boasting for, for Paul. So the idea of being associated with, with the tribe of Benjamin would basically be having some form of boasting rights. This is Paul's way of saying, look, I, I wasn't just a Jew. I wasn't just your normal, average, everyday, you know, try to figure out who Yahweh is, Jew. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Like, the, I, I'm, I'm of nobility. I'm of this, uh, this, this line that is really well-known and recognized. Secondly, we see that he was born and raised in Tarsus in Cilicia. Now, Tarsus, um, Cilicia, again, like I said earlier, was, is, is part of modern-day Turkey. And this would have been a, uh, a really well-known, uh, renowned city. It, was a, it would have been a city that had a great um, um, uh, uh, population there, population center, a lot of uh, Roman as well as Greek artifacts are, are there to this day. Um, it, it was a really well-known spot. And so this, again, this is kind of a boasting, right? It's like, it's like Paul saying, you know, maybe in today's world, like um, if, if you were an atheist that came to meet Jesus, radically transformed, it'd be like you saying, yeah, I was, I was born and raised in, in England right on the campus of, of Oxford. Like, and then Paul goes on to say, he says, I was also educated by uh, Gamaliel. Um, and all of these kind of have passages that refer to this. And Gamaliel was, was a very renowned, respected teacher of Judaism within the first century. Um, so to, to describe him as basically being under kind of a disciple of this guy Gamaliel, uh, again, if you're a renowned atheist, come to meet Jesus, you'd be like, look, I worked side by side with Richard Dawkins. Like, he was my partner. We wrote books together. We wrote The God Delusion together. We were inseparable. We did everything together. We went whitewater rafting and we wrote books to try to undermine Christianity. We were this force to be reckoned with. That's kind of what Paul's saying. So, so these are all basically badges of, of, of nobility and honor that Paul would have once recognized. And then he also describes himself as being zealous for God. This is really profound because, um, again, I just got to really reiterate that this is, this is not the encounter of a, a, a thief or a greedy guy or a drug addict or a pimp or, or whatever type of image you think about in your mind of a, of a sinful person. This is the encounter of someone who is zealous for God with God. So just let that think, sink in for just a second there. Think about that. Because some of you right now, you're like, encounter with God? I'm a Christian. I got saved when I was like 13. I prayed the prayer, right? Whatever prayer that was, you know, the, the Jesus prayer, the, you know, the I accept Jesus in my heart prayer, whatever it was, whenever you did that. So you might have sort of this mentality. I'm like, I know God. I'm aware of who God is. My parents are Christians. My grandma was a Christian. My great grandpa was a, was a pastor. And you might have all of these sort of like badges of honor that you look at, that you ascribe your worth, your value to. But in, but in reality, um, you might be able to simply look at all this and just say you're zealous for God, but you have a t- complete misunderstanding of the God that you're zealous for. Um, may- maybe the God that you're zealous for is not the God that reveals himself or self-discloses himself in, in Scripture. And this is what Paul's going to come face-to-face with. He's going to come face-to-face with who this God is that he, was, that he thought he was zealous for, but he was completely mistaken. So a lot of times people will say, I'm super zealous. Isn't all that really matters is being zealous for something? No, that's the most worthless thing to say. Like sometimes people are like, well, it, it, doesn't it just get some sort of like brownie points for at least being zealous for something or passionate for something? Look, 
Adolf Hitler was extremely passionate for his idea for utopia. All right, I mean, I, I can go to the list and you can think about different types of people that are passionate for something. But at the end of the day, just simply having mere zeal for something in no way, shape, or form guarantees a future of hope and life and healing and wholeness. Because Paul the Apostle was zealous for, for his version of God and yet it was the wrong version. And this, this should be shocking for a lot of us. So just think about that and consider that. And then finally, it describes itself as, this, as a Pharisee, which, again, a badge of honor. We oftentimes read our Bibles, and especially the, uh, the, uh, the narratives of Jesus' life, the biographies of Jesus' life, we call them the Gospels. And we typically think of the Pharisees as being like these really, really bad guys, right? Uh, when you think of Pharisees, you think of like you know, bad music coming on the scene. Actually, the Pharisees in that first century culture, they were highly respected, Highly recognized, highly revered. People loved the Pharisees. They were very moral. They were very upright. Many of them, they honored God. They were defenders of the faith. Like, if you were to put this in the first, or into our context, into our culture, these would be far right-wing, ultra-conservative, Bible-based, fundamentalist, Christian conservative people. Get that? Paul's saying, this, that was me. I was extremely zealous for God. I was extremely conservative. I, I, I believe the scripture was the scripture. I never questioned the scripture. And yet, there's something radically absent from Paul's life. And this is where he comes into face-to-face contact with, with Jesus. So what I want to look at, just kind of in closing, to think about, there's really kind of two things I want to consider uh, to walk away with, is really this idea of like, what, what does an encounter with God like really look like? And then there's a lot of things that you can look at. And I, I don't think necessarily Paul's conversion or encounter with God needs to necessarily be this template because, again, almost every single person that reads this story recognizes that this is, this is really extreme. I mean, it's really extreme. Most of us, if I were to like go through and ask you, like, how did you come to meet Jesus? What was your life like before, post what not in your relationship with God? Did you hear a loud voice coming from heaven? Did you see a bright light? Most of us would not admittedly have that type of experience with God. So, so I don't think it's, it's really important to note. There's a lot of times throughout scripture, um, there are uh, descriptions, uh, descriptive passages, and then there's prescriptive passages. Um, th- this is not prescriptive. In other words, it's not prescribing saying, if you're going to get converted, if you're going to encounter God, it must be prescribed in this fashion or in this manner. This passage, rather, is descriptive. It's just simply telling the story. It's what happened. So, so for Paul, it was this radically profound experience that he had had. But I think there, if you reduce it down or bring it down or uh, reduce it, what, what, I think what you'll take away, there's at least two things I think that happen in this passage that are sort of a template for an encounter with God. That, that we can see these things kind of repeated throughout Scripture that when you have an encounter with God or when something takes place where you are impacted by God or uh, your life is interrupted by God, that really these things kind of happen. There's two things I think about with regard to Paul. Is that one, these encounters with God, they oftentimes involve, first of all, this exposing and exposing. I kind of put some other words on there to kind of break this down so the word exposing might not be descriptive enough for you. But think about it as a breaking or an undoing or a disorientation or a confrontation. Now, most every circumstance that we see this, these, these scenarios where people encounter God, there's sort of this exposing. God pulls away, pulls the rug out from underneath you. God opens your eyes. God does something, disrupts, disorients your life so that you are literally at this place where you are exposed. 
You're like, whoops, I, I don't know what to do now. I, I, don't, I don't have the next game plan mapped out. I don't know what my next move is. Because you are exposed, you're disoriented. And this is oftentimes what God does. He has this way of just sort of disrupting our lives, disorienting us, confronting us. This is exactly what we see happening with, with Paul. And in, in Paul's life, there's really kind of two things that take place. That one, we see this light from heaven that's shown around about him. Again, this bright light blinds him. He's blinded by the light. No description as to like what that was, how that happened. Just simply says a bright light. Was it an angel? Was it God? We don't really know. We just simply know there's a bright light. That's what, what Paul said. Did others see it? Did others didn't see it? Again, this is kind of left to the unpacking of Paul's description of this. But the point is that for Paul, this is kind of what happened. Secondly, we see that there was a voice. And the voice comes, and in almost every single circumstance, it's, it's spelled out the exact same way. This voice comes to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the, the pushback, if you would, from God to Paul saying, why are you persecuting me? But he describes his name twice. So what we see here is Paul literally becoming undone. God completely undoing Paul. But what we see with, with Paul is that Paul really kind of has this, this mentality where later Paul would actually write about this in his testimony. He describes in Acts chapter 26 uh, as himself. He says, I punish them. It's referring to the Christians. Paul will go on to say, he says, I try to make them blaspheme. Can you imagine that? By coercion. Imagine Jack Bauer like trying to get a confession out of them. This is Paul the Apostle. No idea how Paul did this, but he tried to coerce people to recant, to refute, to turn their backs on Jesus. However he did that, we don't know. Waterboarding, I don't know. But Paul was out to try to under, undo, undermine any form of devotion to this, this guy Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, and talking about himself, he says, this is, this is a really powerful passage. He says, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them. Just think about that. Paul was this rabbi, you know, had this incredible pedigree, but inside there was this raging fury within Paul's heart. Think about that. Think about this for a second, because some of us, we have sort of this pious outlook. We look really good on the outside, but inside there's a fire there's something, something akin to hell, something close to the destructive fires of hell that are literally destroying you from the inside out. So Paul said. He says, I had this destructive rage, this anger, this wrath that was burning me alive, and it was coming out, the flames are coming out through me upon these other people that I was seeking to destroy and devour. But I met Jesus, is what Paul's saying. My life was changed. All of this was exposed. I saw it for what it was. This blinding light came. He had this interaction with, with really who God was. And the fact of the matter is, is what we see really with Paul is there was sort of this, this quest, this desire, no doubt within Paul's life. I mean, Paul would later write about this, his whole past life, and he would say, look, all of this, all of my pedigree, all of my accolades, all my medals of honor, all these sort of like actions and activities of acceptance, Paul says all of them, he, he uses the Greek word, it's, it's the word skubalon, which literally, I mean, if you were to translate it, some would say is literally the, 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 the translated word crap. Paul says all, it's a, it's a slang word, in other words. I mean, it's not going to get translated that in most of our Bibles because we try to domesticate it. But Paul's basic word that he's trying to describe my whole life, everything that I once held dear to myself, that I looked at and said, that is where my value lay. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a religious guy. I love Yahweh. I will persecute others that don't love Yahweh. Paul says, all of that, 
It was just dung. Just dung. That's all it is. And Paul's looking at this and saying, look, because his eyes were open. He began to realize this is what happens when we have these encounters with God. God opens our eyes. We begin to see things from his angle, from his light. We begin to realize that oftentimes some of the things that you and I, we put our energies towards, we place our lives in, we passionately, zealously devote our energies towards, oftentimes really amount to nothing more than energy to somehow try to convince ourselves that we are really not insignificant combination of cells in a vast, cosmic, expansive universe. But we actually matter to somebody. In other words, at the end of the day, all of us have this desperate need to somehow justify our existence as somehow having significance. You and I as human beings are, are completely uncomfortable with the sense of just being, I'm a nobody. Nobody, nobody wants to wear that. Nobody wants to be just a nameless, anonymous figure within a crowd. All of us want a place of belonging. All of us need somehow to be honored and loved and valued. And when that is absent, we will stop at no limit, no end to somehow justify our existence. So let me give you some examples of how we do this, all right? Here's some great examples, I think, even within movies. I would never recommend this movie, so, so this is not at all a recommendation. The, the Wolf of Wall Street, all right? It's a horrible, horrible, bad movie. Um, but, but even in that, Leonardo DiCaprio basically plays the main leading role. And the whole idea behind this, he's this, like, tiger, this, you know, this wolf on uh, Wall Street, and he's devouring and eating and expanding his kingdom, his world, but everything comes crashing down, crashing down, and the reality is, the storyline is he has this existential crisis, and everything literally just burns up in the end, because he thought his existence can somehow be justified by how much acquisitions he was able to make, how much money he can make, how many cars he can buy, how much sex he can purchase, all of these things somehow are the means by which he can value, you can, can somehow put a measurement to his value and worth. Some of us, you know, we're never going to get to that level, but some of us look at our outward form, our beauty, you know, our, 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 our definite beauty or our lack thereof beauty. And somehow we're like, I need to look beautiful. I need to be fit. I need to somehow be somebody. Because in doing that, in being that, others will value and appreciate and accept me. So we give all of our energy somehow to towards that end so that somehow we can justify our existence. For some of you, it's not beauty, it's smart. You are very intellectual, very smart. So you justify your existence by somehow saying, I'm really smart, I'm a good hacker, I'm a good reader, I'm a good intellectual mind, I can think, I can process, I can calculate. You have a mind that's very technologically savvy. You have all of these capacities and abilities, and you have this tendency to look at all others that aren't as smart as you, and you condemn, you judge, you put them down. But all of these are attempts to somehow find a means to justify our existence. Um, here's, here's another example, uh, born identity. Here's a guy that literally uh, is, is having this existential identity crisis. Who am I? Am I just a killing machine? Or is there some other storyline that's completely veiled to me that, that I'm not aware of? Is there more to life than just simply this? You can think about the, the Matrix. Again, another kind of story that line like this. Or the Toy Story, all right? Some of you are like, like are there other like, nice stories? Like Toy Story, it's all about this existential crisis. Who am I? Who am I? Who do I belong to? Who owns me? Who knows me? Who knows my name? 
right? Is that the whole storyline? That's the whole storyline. Like right there, I just spoiler alerted the entire movie for you. But the whole idea behind it is that all of us, we are not okay with just being nobodies. And for Paul, his identity was found in his Judaism. His identity was found in persecuting Christians. The more he persecuted, the more he promoted and propped up his worth and validated his own purpose for being alive. I am a Jew of Jews. I am a defender of the faith. I am Yahweh's man. And he come to realize, through having this encounter with God, all of it was self-made. An encounter with God has this tendency to peel back these layers and to show us the flimsy foundations that oftentimes you and I build for ourselves. And yet, it's all part of God's undoing of us. God reorienting us. Paul's identity was in his religious zeal. The question is, you know, for us is, is where is our identity found? Where's, where's yours found? What are the things that you are trying desperately hard to hold on to and prop up within your own lives. I just read this article. I'm going to post it on my Facebook probably later today or tomorrow. Um, just this article about this 13-year-old girl. And it was describing how even within our culture that young, young people who have basically lived their whole lives with a cell phone in their hand, their, their existence is radically being reshaped. And this, she makes a statement. She's talking about posting stuff on her Instagram and getting likes. And she said this. It's kind of almost... Uh, getting likes from these people, it's just, uh, it kind of almost promotes you as a good person. If someone says, TBH, like to be, to be honest, you are pretty nice, and she says, that kind of like validates you. That kind of like validates you. Now think about that. How many of us, we are trying so hard to like be validated, to find somebody that validates us? I mean, this is like a 13-year-old kid. Um, all of us, we have these tendencies to kind of... Uh, to, to come beyond that and find other means and other ways by which this happens. But it's all part of the same root problem that, that infected Paul. What the Bible describes as, as sin. We miss the mark of, of Yahweh. We miss the mark of what it means to be images in, made in his image. Images of God. Image bearers of the king. And when we forget that, when we deny that, when we turn away from that, when we run from that, when we flee from that as fast as far as we can... Um, what happens is we create alternative ways and we bring about brokenness and destruction. This is exactly what Paul did. He literally was, by definition, an agent of destruction, bringing havoc upon all sorts of people. We're just the same. But Paul had an encounter with God, and his life was changed. Here's a great passage. Um, another great example, like, to, if you want to read the history of this, C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. He gives this great account of how he comes to meet Jesus. And this is just a great quote. Has really kind of, he's alluding to this. But he says, this, The hardness of God is actually is kinder than the softness of man, and his compulsion is our liberation. Um, just think about that. What he's, what he's describing is that God came and God confronted him. He's describing this process whereby God confronted him, and God appeared almost hard. Like God, God's hardness, he came up against this brick wall that appeared to be this cosmic being called God. But in crushing into, crashing into this big brick wall called Yahweh, what, what he began to realize was, it wasn't his undoing, even though it was his undoing, but his undoing was really precipitating his rebuilding. Does that make sense? This is what God does. This is what he describes, that his compulsion, God pushing, God moving, God prodding, God shaking you, is really for your liberation. 
so powerful, so profound. Some of you are right on the verge of that. And finally, we see that it also is followed by not only this encounter, but um, these encounters with God are also really um, exemplified by, by his embrace. Next slide. That God embraces us, and we see that this is about acceptance, and reorientation, and forgiveness, and God realigning our lives and bringing about healing. This is what we see with, with Paul. Paul is, is, is immediately, he's blinded, but he hears the, the, the words from Jesus, Saul, Saul, why twice? Um, throughout Hebrew literature, um, whenever you, you read a word like, like written twice or sometimes three times, um, it's, it's the way of bolding something or underlining it or italicizing. It's a way of basically emphasizing. Um, and this is God saying, Saul, Saul, I know you. I know you. I know who you are. I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. I know what you're trying to do. I know the identity you're trying to build and fabricate and manipulate. Saul, Saul, and all of a sudden his life is changed. God embraces him. How do we know that God embraces him? Just listen to this next passage and I'm done here. He says this in Acts chapter 9. We'll actually get more into this next week. Uh, learn about this guy by the name of Ananias. He says, so Ananias entered the house um, and laying hands on Saul. He says, brother Saul. Just listen to that phrase real quick. Brother Saul. This is not like, uh, you know, terrorized Saul. This is not terrorist Saul. This is not, you know, uh, you know, criminal Saul. This is brother Saul. You are my brother. And shocking, again, like Ananias was probably on Saul's menu of people to attack and arrest and kill perhaps. And so now he is literally being accepted and embraced. Why? Why is this so significant? Because this is a tangible evidence that, that Jesus has embraced Paul. That Paul's not on the outside anymore. Paul is not just sort of lost, uh, an identity list, an anonymous person in the midst of trillions of other you know, souls throughout all humanity. Paul is actually accepted into this, this family. He's embraced. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. He was some days with the other disciples at Damascus. So there you go. It's Paul's story. He went from being this religious zeal who thought he knew God, thought things were okay in his life with God, and yet in reality, by coming face to face, coming into this reality of, of God, uh, his life was shaken and disoriented and disarmed, and his life was broken, and yet this was all God's means to really reorient him, to rebuild him, to reset his feet back upon a rock, and I want to give you guys the opportunity. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to respond. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and um, we're going to just, we're going to sing. Um, There's a, there's a great passage I want, I want to read as we think about singing. I read this earlier this week. I've been kind of chewing it all week. It's uh, Eugene Peterson wrote this. He said, um, worship or singing in this context, singing worship is an act that develops feelings for God. Just listen. He says, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. In other words, what he's saying is that oftentimes, you know, we, we, we come to God and we're like, I don't really feel like singing. So we don't sing. We don't enter in. We don't, we don't really worship God. We don't engage God because we're like, everybody else seems like they're all into it. Me, I, I, I just don't feel it. I'm not feeling it. So you don't sing. You, you sit there as a spectator. You watch. You observe, um, which, which is fine for, for some context, but we never enter in. And oftentimes people ask us, what do you think about singing? And you're like, nothing. I don't get anything out of it. Well, what he's saying is that actually when we engage, when we sing, when we enter in, when we do that, enter in, take that step and do that, God has this ability of actually reorienting our 
our feelings, our affections. Jonathan Edwards said almost the exact identical thing in his treatise on religious affections. And the idea is that music has this ability. When we sing, we engage in our hearts to God with our lips and with our bodies. God has this radical ability to transform our hearts. And we don't create these encounters with God. God's already here. God is already here. And my invitation to you is, is to come forth and acknowledge him, to sing to him, to receive prayer. For some of you, you maybe you're not a Christian, and maybe your, your life is one that was really, really broken, really, really messed up, and had no religious background whatsoever. Um, and, and you recognize maybe Jesus wants to transform you and meet you right now, and you want to give your life to him. Um, or you might be here today, and, and you have had some sort of religious background, but you know in your heart, um, the best way to describe your life right now is one of decay. If you can, like, be honest with yourself, you would look at yourself and just say, yeah, it's my, my heart feels like something's decaying inside. And, and we have a God that actually undoes decay, confronts that decay by drilling it out like a tooth. It's really painful. No one likes going to the dentist. But it's always with the aim of giving us life. And for, for some of you, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe you are zealous for God, and maybe you would look at your life and there's this fire that is devouring and destroying you and called decay. And, and you want Jesus to meet you right where you're at. So I'm going to invite you to come on board.